The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. In 1871, a tragic fire hit the city of Chicago. Uh, it left over 100,000 people uh, homeless. And Horatio Spafford was living in Chicago at the time. He was an attorney. And he was also heavily invested in real estate in the city. And so he uh, took a huge financial loss through the fires. At the same time, his son, at the age of four, died from scarlet fever. Spafford tried to drown his grief in his work, helping to rebuild the city as best as he could. Can't imagine the, the grief and the emotional state. He sought to take his family on a vacation. So later, later in his life, in November of 1873, he decided to, to take his wife and four daughters uh, to Europe. He was close with D.L. Moody and uh, Ira Sankey. If you're not familiar with those names, they were um, evangelistic leaders. They're holding meetings in England during that time. But an urgent matter came up and, and he was detained and so he couldn't join them on the ship. So he sent them on without him and, and said he would join them later. And as they joined this luxurious French ocean liner, uh, Spafford kind of felt uncomfortable. He, he had a sort of an unease filling his mind. And so he moved his family from the room that they were in to a different room that was closer to the bow of the ship where he thought they might be safer in the case of an emergency. And then he said goodbye, promising to see them again soon. And then in the middle of the night on November 22nd, the passengers of the ship at sea were awakened by a jolt as the ship had collided with an, an iron sailing vessel. Water began to pour in uncontrollably. One author describes the scene this way. He said, screams, prayers, and oaths merged into a nightmare of unmeasured terror. Passengers clung to posts, tumbled through the darkness, and were swept away by powerful currents of icy ocean. 226 people died that day, including... Maggie, Tanetta, Annie, and Bessie Spafford, Horatio's daughters, all drowned. His wife, Anna, uh, survived. She was found uh, nearly unconscious, just clinging to a piece of wreckage. And so there were 47 survivors. And when they made their way to Wales, she cabled her husband with just the two words, saved alone, saved alone. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that I don't tell that true story in order to stir up your emotions. It is a sad story. It sounds like it's something from a movie. Many might say and look at his life, kind of that little snapshot and say he just had a, a string of bad luck, unfortunate events that happened. But I'm not telling us this story to make us sad or to help us be more thankful for modern medicine and modern travel. As Christians, we believe that God is in control of all things. That God is in control of everything, even the terrible things, even the things that we see as unfair and unjust in our lives. Spafford was a committed Christian. You know the questions that perhaps bounced into his mind at times. Couldn't God have stopped this? 
Where was God in all of this? These are the questions often that injustice and suffering and loss bring to our hearts, even as believers. But we don't need to walk away without an answer. The Bible gives us answers. The Bible helps us understand not just the the good things, the triumphant things in our lives, but the, the tragic things. The Bible presents us with a God that is both sovereign, in control, and good. Both just and merciful. Both holy and full of grace. And it's especially when we don't know or can't clearly see what he's doing that we need to remember who he is and what he's promised to do. Friends, we will either run away from God at times like this or we will run to him as our anchor that keeps us from drifting away when we find ourselves in affliction or we face injustice or suffering. And as a church, we're studying the book of Esther together in a series we're calling The Invisible God, mainly because God's name doesn't show up in the book of Esther, which is very unusual in the book of the Bible. But it's not because God isn't involved in the story. No, his hand is mightily at work, just like he's at work in your life and in my life. So even when it seems that God is absent, he's working in all of the elements of this story. Even in this section where we see a massive plot for injustice against God's own people to kill them all. God is at work for his good and for his glory, for our good and for his glory. So you may not be facing news like Horatio Spafford faced that day, that tragic, but you are facing something and you are having to think through how these things fit together in your life, God's love and his control with our pain and our affliction. And if we're not facing something now, we will be soon. I pray that Esther chapter 3, 2 and 3 would help us just to be guided in this, in our thinking as we consider who God is. The main point of this chapter or these chapters, I think, and the main point of the sermon is this, if you want to just jot it down, trust God for true and final justice. Trust God for true and final justice justice. So whatever your circumstance is, uh, you can have a confident trust that, that the God of all justice is at work and he will make all things right. And so I want to encourage you to trust God in three particular ways from our passage. These are outlined in your notes in your bulletin there. If you want to follow along, you can. Three particular ways. First, I want you to see and trust that God is at work even when the wicked prosper. Even when the wicked prosper. Secondly, trust that God is at work when obedience is hard. When obedience is is hard. And then finally, trust that God is at work when the enemy attacks. When the enemy attacks. I think this trust can come often in the form or the feel of waiting. It can feel like waiting. It can look like waiting. Think of what Isaiah says in Isaiah 30 verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. I just want you to know there's a tension in that verse. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. And he exalts himself to show mercy. For the Lord is a God of justice. And blessed are those who wait on him. 
Friends, not always do we immediately see the thing that we think we ought to see from God in our lives. What we do have is Him. He is exalted in our life, no matter the circumstance. And those who wait on Him, trust Him, will be blessed. And we need God's grace to help us live out that tension and know more about it. So let's look at our passage and and think about how this looks. How to trust God, even when, number one, even when the wicked prosper. And if you're visiting with us or you're new, just to catch you up on the passage, so far what we've seen is, is the Persian Empire is a dangerous place for, for God's people. We've seen what life is like. Uh, the king's name is Ahasuerus, and he has complete authority. He, he speaks and law is formed. And he, he uses it often for his own purposes. So he's thrown a, a six-month-long feast for everyone in the kingdom, particularly for his, his, his leaders, in order to rally support for a, an attack that's coming on Greece. And during that time, he invites his queen to come and kind of show off her beauty in front of kind of his drunken friends, and she refuses to come. And so this causes a big ruckus and stir within the kingdom, and he vanquishes her as king and and sort of sets up a contest for who the next queen would be. And in the, in the middle of that, his, his military conquest against Greece fails. And so he returns back to Persia, really defeated and, and kind of focused on the wrong things, really overly indulgent, in, particularly in sensuality. And so we've, we saw last time that, that of all the women in the kingdom, Esther, this Jewish young orphan, was, was chosen after one night with the king, to be the new queen of Persia and replace Vashti. And she was raised by her uncle Mordecai, who was, who was a part of this process. And it's this match between a Gentile king and a Jewish queen, queen which sort of sets the stage for the rest of the story. So let's pick it up in chapter 2, verse 19. Look with me there at Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kingdom or her people, her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and brought to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the presence of the king, in the presence of the king. Uh, This seems to be a a bit of a flashback into the story. Uh, So kind of going back to that queen contest we saw in chapter 2, the the second time these women were gathered, that probably takes us back to show us during that time what was going on with Mordecai. He's sitting at the king's gate. We read that doesn't mean that he's just hanging out with his buddies, shooting the breeze. That's that's actually an official position that he has in the kingdom, uh, in the king's court. And so the king's gate was actually a wall as high as 100 feet that surrounded the palace. And inside that, that wall, his officials met, and, and Mordecai seems to have some sort of official role in that administration. And it's here that he finds himself at the right place, at the right time, to overhear an assassination plot against the king by two of his servants. And, and the more we get to know this king, the more we understand, we understand like why people would be angry at him. He has a reputation for upsetting people. 
He eventually was assassinated, so this attempt doesn't work, but he would eventually be assassinated by some of his own uh, uh, men in his bedroom. Mordecai reports this plot to Esther, who, who tells the king, and she gives credit to her source. It came from Mordecai. It's in Mordecai's name. There's an investigation. The plot was found to be, to be true, and these men responsible were hanged on the gallows. And you're going to see a little bit more about gallows and execution throughout the book of Esther. Uh, it most likely means being hung by the neck, you know, by a rope. But sometimes it can also mean just being impaled on stakes. Uh, history tells us that the Persians would hang a person, so by the neck, until they were dead. And then, then they would often impale them in public as a way to shame them in front of everyone else on these stakes. So, so either way, this is not, not good, not a good way to go. And then the Persian custom was also that any good deeds that were done toward the king like this would be greatly um, rewarded and would be recorded in, this, in the presence of the king in the book of Chronicles. So all these things would be written down and they would be lavishly, usually immediately rewarded. And so we see that Mordecai's deed is recorded in the king's book, but then we read nothing of his reward. It's as if he's overlooked. This, this is kind of a big deal that he just did, and, and normally he would, there would be like a huge parade for him. Nothing happens. But what's worse, look what happens in chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, as a reader, we stand a little bit shocked seeing this. We expected to see Mordecai's name there. He's the one that deserves the promotion. He, he saved the king's life. There's no reason why we can find that Haman would be chosen to sit as the highest official in the kingdom. This, this feels wrong. This feels unfair. But there's more. Haman is described as an Agagite, which locates him with the Amalekite people of the Old Testament. And if you remember, Agag was their king at the time of Saul. And the Amalekites were, were known as enemies of God's people from the sort of beginning, from the Exodus. Throughout the Old Testament, they, they were known to do this and attack God's people. They, they, did it, they were the first to attack God's people as they left Egypt in the wilderness. And God promised Moses that he would eradicate them from the face of the earth in Exodus 17. He commanded Israel to destroy them in Deuteronomy 25. So you see that just the insult added to injury here, not only is is Mordecai slided from his reward, this, this enemy of God's people gets promoted over him. Despite Mordecai's good work for the kingdom, the wicked seem to be winning. I think of Jeremiah's question to the Lord as he thought through the same reality in his own day. Jeremiah 20, 12 verse 1 says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? It's a prophet of God asking God the same question that perhaps we're asking of our text and maybe even of our own lives. I wonder if you've ever wrestled with this same question in your own experience. Do you know what it feels like to be slighted? When you think you ought to be somewhere or deserving something and you don't get it. Have you thought you deserved a reward or promotion or honor only to see it go to someone who you thought didn't deserve that reward? Do you wonder sometimes how the lives of unbelievers often seem to be going so well? 
They seem to be so trouble-free while you're seeking to serve the Lord and have so much prob- so much, so many problems, so much trouble. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? I wonder if you've ever been tempted to try their way. It seems to be getting better results. Well, why don't, why don't we try it? So I think the teaching of, of this section of Esther here is, is there to point us, isn't it, to trust in God's providential care for his people. Trust in God's providential care for you and for me. We often talk about God's providence, so his control of all things, but particularly in situations that are positive or that have happy endings that we can clearly see. But we see God's providence here in our passage both working negatively and positively, if you could, talk, if you could speak of it that way. So Mordecai just happens to be in the right place at the right time to hear of the assassination plot. We can say, well, that's God's providence. It's God's grace. That's something we're used to saying. By God's grace, I got that promotion. By God's grace, things have worked out well in my family. And it's right to say that. But he's also left unrewarded, isn't he? And we're slower to say, this too is God's good providence. This too is God's grace. This too is God working his will, working all things together for the good of his people. Because we're going to see later in the story that that the fact that he's not rewarded now ends up uh, being one of the key factors that saves God's people. It's crucial to the whole story. And so, beloved, we need to be reminded that we cannot see the end from the middle where we sit right now. We, we can't understand all the things that God is doing in our lives. And so we need to trust him and wait on him with patience, knowing that he is righteous and knowing that he has not forgotten us. Even the disappointments in our lives, the things that we think we deserve and need, those are used by God to bring about his greater purposes. Some of those things we're going to see in this life. We're going to be able to see, like we do in our story here, a redemptive theme in our own life of things God's doing. I didn't get this here, but here's why. Friends, we need to also know some of those things we won't see. Some of those things we won't be able to trace God's hand, but we still need to to trust him and know that ultimately vindication and restoration will come. Justice will be done. Whatever we've lost, whatever injustice we've experienced will be beyond comparison with what we have in Christ. Remember that the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. God is always at work. We don't have the wisdom that it takes, friends, to plan our lives the way they ought to go. So we can rest in the secret wisdom and goodness and providence of God. We can trust him even when the wicked prosper. Even when we look around and see things that we think shouldn't be. We can trust God. Secondly, we need to trust God even when obedience is hard. Even when obedience is hard. So here in our text, not only are God's people under the rule of a pagan king, but now his second in command is an Agagite, which just means he's an enemy of the Jewish people. And so the tension in this story is just building. So let's pick it up there in verse 2 of chapter 3. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So given what we know about Haman and the history of God's people, I don't think we're too surprised to see this. 
I mean, scholars will debate about Mordecai's reasons for not bowing. Was it because he just wouldn't bow to any man? Because he would only bow to God? And that doesn't seem to be the case. He, he seems to have bowed at other times to the, to the king. Esther will later bow to the king in the story. It seems to be that it's particularly Haman that he won't bow to. And, and I don't think it's just because he's jealous because Haman got promoted over him. Some would say that. But there's nothing in the text that points to that. We've, we've kind of, get, we're getting used to the ambiguity in the book of Esther. All the details that we'd like to know, the juicy details aren't there. But the text does, I think, just lay out the facts for us and remind us who Haman is and who, who Mordecai is. And I think that's behind this, this, this not bowing because he was an, a Gagite. So I think we should see this defiance as an act of obedience on Mordecai's part. Again, we're not trying to make him out to be a hero. He's let some things slide and done some things that we're not sure about. But, but here he seems to be identifying himself clearly with the people of God. God's chosen people, a people that the Amalekites were known for opposing. So to bow would be this act of unfaithfulness that he couldn't stoop to do. No pun intended. And, and unlike the instructions that he gave Esther about keeping her Jewishness to herself, Mordecai seems to be making his identity clear. Not just in this act, but the way he talks to the king's officials. Look at verse 3. Then the king's servants were at the king's gate. They, they said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. So this means that he had likely explained to them the history of Haman's people, history of God's people, and what God's word was on the matter. And this would have been a great risk to him. And of course, as we're going to see to all of the people and to Esther. And so Mordecai's insubordination is, is sort of is, is out and it's public. And we see Haman's response there in verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So they, as, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So again, you might be surprised to see that Mordecai's obedience here results in more trouble for him and for the people of God. Maybe you thought that obedience is supposed to actually lead to an easier, more comfortable life. Maybe Mordecai was surprised as well. Maybe he, he kind of was second-guessing and thinking, man, just a little bow, that wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But now, again, we're just kind of left wondering as the, as the reader, where, where is God in this? In this man's plotting to destroy all of his people. Friends, the truth is that walking in obedience in this life is not a guarantee that things are going to go better for you or for me. In fact, things can often get harder. Sometimes following Jesus makes your life harder, not easier. Because we live in a broken, dark world that, that is a different kingdom. It's not our home. Jesus promised that it would be this way. John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you have, may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So trouble may come to us as believers in many different forms. 
It may come in the form of persecution, which this might be an example of that, of, of seeing a particular group of people set aside to be persecuted. Something we need to remember with our brothers and sisters who are in very similar situations today across the world, who are being persecuted, particularly because of their association as Christians, as believers and followers of Jesus. We need to also know that there are forces at work kind of beneath the surface as well that are also against you and me, against God's people and against his purposes. So the hatred here of Haman toward God's people really reflects a deeper enmity, really between kind of a battle that's been raging ever since Genesis chapter 3, where these supernatural forces are against God's people and against God. Enmity that we find in Genesis 3 between the serpent and the seed of the woman that's still raging. So we find opposition not only from worldly forces, but forces outside of this world as well. But there's more. We need to think about often that that our strongest enemy on this path to obedience is ourselves. It's our own sin or the sins of, of others around us against us. Our own sin and the sin of others can make obedience hard. Think about the connection the author's making here between Mordecai and he's from the tribe of Benjamin. We learned earlier he's a descendant of Kish. And he's, he's really connecting him with Saul from the Old Testament, isn't he? Who was also from the tribe of Benjamin, who was a son of Kish. And you remember in Saul's day, he was commanded to destroy a particular people group. It was the Amalekites. But he didn't. He spared some of them, including their king, Agag. So he thought, Saul thought that he sort of knew creatively how to obey better than God had told him to. And now, just fast forward to to Mordecai's time, the great enemy of God's people in our story is Haman the Agagite. Friends, just be reminded that, that sin has consequences. If Saul had been obedient, Mordecai would never have had to make this tough decision now, whether or not to, to bow to Haman. And, and Haman would not be plotting the destruction of the Jews. So we tell ourselves often, don't we, that our sins are kind of just for us. They're, they're not going to affect anyone else. They're in private, they're secret. We'll keep them under control. But friends, this is simply a lie. The wages of sin are death. We understand this if we've dabbled with sin and then tried to kind of get out of that bed that we've laid for ourselves. How much better to seek to honor Christ now in our obedience. No matter the cost, whatever it is, it's better than to have to deal with later the the complications and the consequences that come from our sin that surely come from giving in. Jesus reminds us of of the value of obedience now in Mark 10, verse 29. He says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. He includes that. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And this is the words of Christ. Obedience often feels like coming in last. Obedience will sometimes feel like you're you're coming in last, because we live in a broken world that's not, not seeking the same things that we're seeking. But Jesus promises that whatever we forfeit in this life, whether it's our reputation or whatever the cost may be at work, 
It will seem microscopic compared to what he has for us in glory. Friend, where does obedience seem hard for you right now? Maybe you're here, especially as a young person, and you find yourself around a a peer group, a, a group of folks that are living a particular way, whatever that way may be, going a particular direction. Where does obedience seem hard for you? To show yourself to be a follower of Jesus. Someone who, who worships God. Someone who has, who has been saved through the gospel. Maybe it's living out your witness at work. It just seems hard. Maybe it's in your marriage. Brothers, maybe, maybe not giving in to the temptation to come home from work and just check out. Instead of to lead and love and serve your family. Avoiding a hard conversation that you just know you need to have. Doing something that you don't want to do, but that you know is best and right. Whatever that situation may be. Trust the Lord and know that even though the obedience is hard, you can trust him. He's sovereign. He's at work in your life. Trust him. Also, number three, finally, we can trust the Lord when the enemy attacks. Number three, when the enemy attacks. As we go through the rest of this passage, we're just going to see how bent Haman is on destroying the Jews. And, and it seems, he seems like he's perfectly positioned to do it. So we've learned already that the king is easily manipulated by his advisors. They kind of throw out a suggestion. He's like, oh, let's do that. And that's, it becomes law. But the invisible God of the Bible is ultimately still in control. Look at verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. I think what's happening here is, is Haman is consulting the gods. So he's using these, this, this purr, the, the dice, as a way of divination to know when he should attack, when this attack should take place that he wants to destroy the Jews, what month should it take place in. And this would be very common that we would see uh, dice in these, these Purim used um, for this case. It, it it's kind of begins in the month of Nisan, which is the first month, actually Passover season for the Jews, which is interesting, kind of a, a subtle reminder there of God's deliverance of them um, for, through the people of Egypt. And then the lot actually falls on the 12th month, the month of Adar. And so, so Haman is going to have to wait, just get this picture in your mind, he's going to have to wait 11 months before the destruction is going to take place. And there again, I just think we're reminded of God's sovereignty, even over something as small and seemingly random as the rolling of dice, flipping of a coin. Proverbs sixteen thirty three: the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, Haman has got this kind of divine approval in his mind, but now he wants, needs to convince the king of his plan. And so we see that in verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. 
So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Here we find out that Haman actually does have some knowledge of the Jewish people. He says they abide by different laws. So so there's some distinction in the way in which they live, even in in exile. They don't keep the king's laws. Uh, Interesting. Uh, The charge that often comes against God's people is, is treason, serving another king, loyalty to another kingdom. And then Haman sweetens the deal with with cash, a hefty cash prize that would go directly into the king's bank account, which if you remember is hurting because of this depleted kind of effort with Greece. And so this amount of silver is actually more than half the annual tax revenue of the entire empire. We're talking tons of silver, like literally tons of silver. And where he has the money, I don't know. Perhaps he's planning to take it from the, from the, 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 the Jews after they're, they're exterminated. Either way, the king gives Haman his signet ring, which signifies his authority and power. So, so Haman, the enemy of the Jews, the author reminds us of that, now has the power of the king to do whatever seems best to him. And friends, we just need to be reminded that that power is actually not his. But that's the power that he thinks he has. To do whatever seems best to him, he can do whatever he wants. So this, this kind of death plot is signed and sealed and delivered. And then just like we saw earlier with the royal proclamation and the story about, about the queen, the news of this coming destruction is proclaimed throughout the kingdom. Look there at verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and the governors all over the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. Remember, there's a multi-ethnic group here living in this Persian kingdom. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation, to all the peoples to be ready to all the peoples to be ready for that day the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel and the king and Haman sat down to drink but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion friend just consider what it would be like to hear that kind of proclamation that edict publicly sort of pronounced Remember, it's not just those living in Babylon, those Jews still there, but even those who had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple were still under Persian rule. So we're talking about a horrific, widespread massacre. This is the, the enemy's attack. Just put yourself in the shoes of the, of the men and women kind of throughout this kingdom who had heard this news proclaimed. Death, destruction, total annihilation was coming to the Jews in 11 months. Just imagine what those conversations like were in town. Imagine what it was like to, to know those people in your neighborhood that are going to die in 11 months and yet still 
You're interacting with them. You see why the city would be so confused and thrown into chaos. How can we just act like everything's normal when there's a death warrant on all these people's lives? Brother and sister, I just, that, that picture, if you're here and you're a Christian, maybe you, you see it, really caught my attention. And it just caused me to think first about those around me, around you, that we work with, we go to school with, play sports with, shop with, that are condemned, that stand condemned, not by a drunken madman like this king in our story, but by the holy God of the universe. Jesus said in John three eighteen, whoever believes in him is not condemned in, in, in Christ, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. But if you think about it, God actually has a lot more sort of against us, reason to act against us, than Ahasuerus has against the Jews. We are his people. He's made us in his image to know him and love him. And we have not kept his way. We have rebelled, in fact, against his word, against his authority as our creator and king. We have failed ourselves to honor him, to worship him, to give thanks to him. We've refused to bow before him as the one who deserves all honor and respect. And so, Logically, we would have to ask, why would a holy God tolerate a sinful people? Why are we still breathing today? Why are so many still breathing today who are far from God? And then on top of our sin against a holy God, we have a cosmic enemy who's much more crafty than Haman in our story, who's ready and eager to put forth all of the evidence of your sin and my sin before God. And he would be right in doing so. He would be correct. But friends, we need to be reminded this morning that God has not chosen to let the news that would be heralded and proclaimed across the globe be news of judgment, but of hope and mercy. So instead of pouring out his wrath on us and annihilating us, he sent his son to save us. The father destroyed, he killed He annihilated Jesus for us. Jesus took the penalty of our sins. Jesus was mocked. His goods were plundered and divided up. He was hung on a cross. And just when it seemed that the enemy was winning and had won, the invisible God at work raised Jesus from the dead. Through the most unjust act in history, God redeems his people. Listen to Acts 4, 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And that's the most evil, unjust act in history that God ordained to save his people through. And now, because of the good news of the gospel, he calls us to proclaim it. So instead of death warrants going out to every corner of the empire, we can proclaim good news in everyone's, we pray, language and tongue, tribe and and language. Paul says we ourselves are living letters of God to a lost and dying world in 2 Corinthians 3. 
So friend, if you're here this morning and you're, you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, let me call you to turn from your sins and bow your knee to Christ. Bow your knee to the king of the universe. Respond to this news of his work on the cross for your sin by putting your trust in him. Make him your treasure. Believe on him. Turn from your sins. Know that he died to save you. If you don't, you need to know that you stand now condemned already. You can't be saved by your silver and gold, even as much as as Haman's here. You can't be saved by turning over a new leaf, trying harder to be good. No one can escape the reality of our guilt before a holy God. And you need to know the enemy understands that very well about you. And he will bring that up to you, particularly if you're a believer. He'll have those weapons in his arsenal. He'll point out all the ways in which you've failed. But by God's grace and because of Jesus Christ, that death sentence upon us has been lifted. Friends, this is the free gift of God's grace to us. It is on offer to us this morning. Jesus fulfilled the law that we could not keep in our place. He silences the voice of our enemy and he will sustain us. Even when the enemy attacks, he'll sustain us until the end. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 8. He says, Jesus will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guiltless. No guilt before a holy God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So, brother and sister in Christ, just as God sustains his people amidst the attacks of the enemy in the book of Esther, he will sustain you. No matter what the enemy says, no matter what past sins he brings to your mind, past failures, current sins, current failures, no matter in any way he may try to discourage you, your standing with God is not based on your performance or your circumstances, but on the righteous life, substitutionary death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing and no one can change that. In Christ alone we stand and we can say and we can sing, it is well with my soul, even when the enemy attacks. Now we'll see more of how this story unfolds in Esther in the particulars next week, Lord willing. But let's close and and remember where we were with Horatio Spafford as, as he heard the news from his wife that his daughters had drowned He booked a passage to join them, to join his wife, rather. And when he was en route um, on a ship, the captain called him aside and he said, I believe we are now passing over the place where the ship went down. And so Spafford went into his cabin. He said he found it really hard to sleep, obviously, but he said to himself, it is well. The will of God be done. And later he would write the hymn that we're about to sing here together in just a minute. It is well with my soul. And I just pray that that would be your response this morning to God's word, that you would commit to take God at his word, to trust him, to trust him, even when the wicked prosper, even when obedience in your life is hard, and even when the enemy attacks. Be reminded what the psalmist says in Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Amen. Let's pray as we close. Father, we thank you for your your goodness and we thank you for your providence in our lives. 
Lord, we confess often we don't understand. We can relate to Jeremiah and to the psalmist. Lord, often we question the circumstances in our lives and we wonder about the, the pain or the lack of some good gift that we may have lost or may never have received. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to trust you. Remind us, Lord, of your power. Remind us of your plan. And Lord, remind us of your love for us. Thank you that you sent Christ to die. And no matter what injustice we face, it's not greater than what he faced. And we can find comfort in him. We can find peace in him, even though in this world we have tribulation. So Lord, I pray that you would minister to those in this room that are struggling. Lord, prepare those among us that are about to enter into a time of of testing or affliction and help our witness together as a church be one that honors you. Lord, we love you and we need you for these things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. For the glory of God. Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the Great Commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.